Let's begin by opening our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. This is a verse that many of you know, whether you may know the reference or not, but it's often been used and seldom been accented on the proper part of the verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. Moses says, the secret things belong to the Lord. And that's one of the things that we often point to when we look at this verse. The secret things belong to the Lord. But listen to what he says next. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Over the last month, we have been turning our attention as a church to the, the doctrine of bibliology or the Bible, the doctrine of Scripture. What does it mean that God has written a book? What does it mean that the Bible is holy Scripture? And you've heard all sorts of wonderful, incredibly theologically dense and rich thoughts, exegetically sound um, explanations that inform us that the Bible is is special revelation, not just natural revelation, that the Bible is an inspired book, not just one that men wrote on their own, that the Bible is sufficient and that we're lacking nothing because of this book. It's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, that the Bible has been given to us with help, with the illumination of the Spirit of God so that we can see what God said and what God means by what he said. Mark Twain famously quipped, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. And that little statement, I think he grabbed the essence of a problem that we're going to address today. It goes back to the very first question ever asked in the scripture, perhaps, the first question ever asked by human lips and it's the first question that we have recorded in the Bible. In Genesis 3.1, there's a conversation going on between Eve and the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You ask a question. And if you boil down the question that the enemy, that Satan, that the serpent was asking, it's really simply this. Was God clear in what he said? Was he clear enough to be understood? Because Satan provides a rider. He provides a footnote. He provides an alternative understanding, an extra application. I think if you listen to most objections to what the Bible says, almost all of them reduce down to the question of whether or not the Bible's clear. More than any other critique, the Bible suffers from both unbelievers and believers themselves, those who claim to know Christ and to be a believer in the gospel, as a book that doesn't contain internal, intrinsic clarity. Now, I don't know if you have or need an an outline that we gave, but I think, uh, I'm not sure if those are all out, if the guys can find people with uh, this outline that we provided just as a way to track our thoughts today. But we're gonna look at the doctrine of 
clarity, or as the theologians call it, the doctrine of perspicuity, a very unclear word for the word clarity. I don't know why they decided to come up with perspicuous or perspicuity, but that's the word that we use to talk about the doctrine of God's clarity. Now, to go back to understanding the history of this doctrine, it's really anchored in the very roots of the Reformation. There was a, a, a Greek scholar and a theologian for the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, in Luther's time named Erasmus. And he and Luther began to exchange very harsh and colorfully languaged uh, interaction about whether or not God's word was clear enough to be understood with just a simple reading, or you needed the Roman Catholic Church to provide all that, um, uh, the only things that you needed to, to get full access and understanding and accessibility to make it intelligible. Well, Luther fires back at Erasmus basically saying, no commoner could ever understand the Bible without the help of the church. And Luther says, but if many things still remain abstruse and to many ununderstandable, this does not arise from the obscurity, from any obscurity in the scriptures themselves, but from our own blindness or lack of understanding. That's the theological crux of the entire issue we're gonna be looking at this morning. If there's a problem understanding the Bible, it's not because God has spoken unclearly, it's because our ears are broken. Our heart is inclined to disunderstanding. It's, it's inclined to sin. Let's look then at this doctrine, the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. We're going to break it down theologically. Now, as you know, I'm typically a verse-by-verse, next-verse guy, and that's an important, I think, staple for the church to be fed on. But there are occasions when you need to come to theology class, and we need to systematize what God has said and pull some things together. Systematic theology is simply this. It's looking at what God says about a particular subject or a particular part of his character or a particular doctrine in multiple places in the scripture and seeing what these, 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 these uh, multiple tributaries flow into to give us a clearer understanding of a doctrine or of a topic. So let's look then at the perspicuity or the clarity of scripture. First, we're going to look at the meaning of the perspicuity of scripture. Now your assignment is to be able to use that word sometime this week in your vocabulary, okay? The meaning of the perspicuity of scripture. First, That means that scripture is written by God in such a way that it can be understood by God's people. Said another way, God is the greatest communicator and the invention of communication and language. He actually used words. He spoke the creation into existence. He speaks to be understood. Now let me just ask you kind of a fun question, okay? I want to read you something and ask you how clear it is. I want you to pay very careful attention. Listen to every word, okay? Eye contact, focus, listen. Listen to this little poem and see if you can figure out what the author was saying. Here it is. Scintillate, scintillate, globulae vivific. Vain I would fathom thy nature specific. Loftily poised in ether capacious. 
strongly resembling a gem carbonaceous. You know what that is? Twinkle, twinkle, little star. How I wonder what you are. Up above the world so high like a diamond in the sky. Now that you know the meaning, listen to it again. Scintillate, scintillate, globula vivific. Vain, I would fathom thy nature. Specific, loftily poised in the ether, capacious, strongly resuming a gem, carbonaceous. Which of those two do you think God would choose if he were going to communicate the meaning of that, that poem? That's important. God is not circumlocutious, meaning he uses lots of words with no meaning. God is not unclear. God is, God is vivid. He's not playing hide and seek with his meaning. My suspicion is if you were to read that four-line poem to almost anyone and say, what does that mean? They wouldn't come up with twinkle, twinkle, little star. If you were to want to communicate what twinkle, twinkle, little star is, you would say that simple nursery rhyme. Scripture is written then by God in such a way that it can be understood by God's people. We'll come back to that. That's the, the target of people who can understand. Secondly, Scripture is intelligible and accessible. If you're going to study the doctrine of perspicuity, these are your two words to hang all of your thoughts on. Intelligibility and accessibility. Intelligible. It, it has meaning. It has understanding. You don't have to guess at what God means. He says what he means and he means what he says. God, here's the big news, does not have nor has he ever had a speech impediment. He doesn't stutter. He doesn't stammer. He doesn't pause in the middle of a sentence and think, what, what's the word? He invented language. He invented every language. He knows every language with no accent. He is the author of communication. And he speaks intelligibly and he speaks accessibly. This accessibly, uh, accessibility is amazing. God's word is so clear it can be understood down in our three-year-old Sunday school class. And God's word is so intelligible it can be studied by the most brilliant of scholars and always find new and wonderful, amazing insights. It's intelligible and God speaks accessibly. Uh, thirdly, Scripture's clarity is tied to the ability and character of God. This is really important. In, in other words, your bibliology is connected to your theology proper, if you want the theological language for that. What we believe about the Bible is, is inseparable from what we believe about the nature of God himself. Think about this theologically. The God who invented language, who spoke the world into existence, the most capable, capable being who has ever uttered a word or communicated would do so and has done so clearly. How does God communicate in reflection to his nature? Well, what is God like? He's good. He's holy, he's all-powerful, he's omniscient, omnipresent, and if you put all of the nature of God together, it comes to the point of his ability to communicate and his character, his graciousness, his kindness, his condescension to communicate to us. 
making God, listen, the most clear communicator to have ever spoken. And fourthly, here introducing Theus still, Scripture's clarity is illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Shane Culler spoke on this a few weeks ago. I won't belabor the point. There are two dimensions of Scripture's clarity. The first dimension is just grammatical clarity. Unbelievers and people who know English can understand the English Bible in terms of its sentence structure. There's a noun, there's a verb, there's a predicate, there's a preposition, there's an appositive, there's a conjunction. It's easy to understand the meaning of words. That's different than it being clear to the soul. And we'll come back to that with Paul's words to the Corinthians in just a moment. More importantly, God is ultimately clear giving his God-intended meaning to the Christian who is illumined by the Spirit of God to be able to see exactly what God means and what's, how you apply, how you would find implications from what he said. Now, our second major point here is to look at the biblical support for the perspicuity of Scripture or biblical support for Scripture's clarity. Now, at this point, we need to have just an old-fashioned Bible study, okay? Uh, oil up the spines of your passages, uh, of your Bibles. We are going to look at lots of passages, and we're going to move fast. If you want to just look at these or mark these, you can do that, but we need to move quickly through this. I want to show you Scripture's own testimony to its own clarity. That's important. First of all, Exodus chapter 33, we need to start with his communication in general. Exodus chapter 33. There's a very interesting um, interplay here between God and Moses. Moses, as you know, has just come off of uh, 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 several encounters with God. The golden calf has happened. Uh, the, the leading presence of the Lord has been taken away. The pillar of cloud by day, this tornado of cloud that would follow in the day, this tornado of fire at night, he took it away, which is, by the way, one of the reasons they wandered around for four decades in the wilderness. They didn't know where to go. Moses then has a conversation with God just before that famous cleft in the rock incident where he's hidden in the rock to see the afterglow, the, the wake of God himself. Moses does this in verse 18, Exodus 33. He says, I pray you, he's talking to God, show me your glory. Now think about that. Show me your glory. Now, class, what of the five senses, what sense is Moses appealing to God to reference? Show me your glory. What is he, what is he appealing to? Sight. Good. Is that clear? It's very clear. Show me your glory. I want to see something. Don't miss what God says in response. Verse 19. And he says, I myself... It's an emphatic reflexive in the Hebrew. I and I alone will make all of my tov, my, my goodness, which is a parallel to, to uh, his glory. All that I am, the, my, my holy and good and desirable nature, everything you want to know about me. I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will Proclaim and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now here's, this is important. What, what, what sense does proclamation use? Use your ears. 
Moses says, show me something. God says, I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to tell you something. Moses did see something. In chapter 34, he's put in the cleft of the rock. God's glory passes by. He sees the afterglow. And then he tells us what it looked like. No, he doesn't. He tells us nothing of what he saw. And he tells us everything that he heard. Establishing the fact early in the nation of Israel's history that God, listen, is fundamentally a verbal God this side of heaven. He's verbal. In other words, we get to know him by what he says. Now, if you're longing like I am to see, that's where I have right next to that 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Paul says, we walk by faith now and not by what? So we don't walk by what we see now. Our, our faith is not built on what we see. Our faith is based on what we hear from God. And where do we hear about God? Dr. Strand told us two weeks ago that he's given us all pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of God. Where is the only place the true knowledge of God is captured, written, and articulated? Your Bible. So the first thing we need to establish is God is verbal. And he's being verbal so that we will walk by faith and not by sight. And just a little footnote. I think most of the struggles we ever have as a Christian is trying, trying to live by sight and not walking by faith on this planet. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things do belong to the Lord, but you know what? He has revealed the things that belong to us. God has made sure in a verbal, plenary fashion that was codified in a book to give us what belongs to us. In other words, to tell us all we need to know for life and godliness, everything that's waiting for us in eternity, everything that means to live a godly life and please him this side of heaven. Turn over while you're, uh, uh, if, you, if you can, to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I just wanted you to establish a precedent here. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And you can see those verses. We're going to be moving fast through these. Deuteronomy 30, verse 10. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, that would be Genesis through Deuteronomy. If you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul for this is the commandment for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you nor is it out of reach do you see the clarity there God says what I've said is not out of reach you, you can get this it's not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven and get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it in other words what God has said it wasn't left in heaven he's given it to us nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea to get it for us? Make us hear it that we may observe it. But the word is very near to you, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may live it or observe it. You, where do you have to go to get God's word? You know where you have to go? Probably it's, it's sitting in your lap. You have to go to the word, to the scriptures. Advancing a little later in Israel's history, in Nehemiah, after the, the great revival of Israel, the recapturing of the law, Nehemiah 8.2, then Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding 
on the first day of the month. In other words, if you could understand language, the word of God could be clear to, who, to, to, to your understanding. This included kids. Nehemiah 8.8, just a few verses down. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the meaning, the sense, so that they understood the reading. Do you see the intentionality that God's word was framed in such a way that God's people would understand it so intimately that they could apply it and live it? New Testament. And there are hundreds of passages we could go to, literally. Acts chapter 17 Verse 10, then the brethren sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And now these were noble-minded, now these were noble-minded more than those in Thessalonica. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with a number of prominent Greek men and women. You know what that's? telling us? When you study the scriptures, they are clear enough to bring you to the knowledge of God's salvation in his son and the gospel. And they were looking here, by the way, at the Old Testament scriptures. The only possible deduction you could make in looking at the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the teaching of Jesus was that he was the promised Messiah of the scriptures in the Old Testament. Flip over to Romans chapter four. Romans four. Therefore, speaking of justification by faith, it was also credited to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. What is he saying there? He's saying the clarity of what was written about Abraham's justification by faith is so clearly left to us that we can understand the application of salvation by faith in our own context with Christ, just as Abraham experienced righteousness credited to his account in his belief. Flip over to Romans 10, verse six. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. We just read that verse, Deuteronomy that is the word of faith which we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse eight, what does it, that's the scriptures, what do they say? The obvious implication is that if you understand what God has said in his word, you have understood God. Verse 10, it results in righteousness and from believing in your heart, confession and salvation. Romans 15, four. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Notice it doesn't say what was ever written in earlier times was written as a riddle for us to figure out what God meant. 
There's the assumption that we can read it and understand it for application and for living. That by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So why doesn't everybody get it? Why can't we just stand on Mission Road with a loudspeaker, especially when the high school next to us lets out and all those students are walking by and a loudspeaker, just read the Bible and everyone falls on their knees in confession and in adoration of Christ. Why do some people get it and why do some people not? 1 Corinthians chapter two. This is a critical verse for your theological uh, construct for the way you interpret life and the way you interpret your, your, your growth and the way you interpret unbelief, disbelief. 1 Corinthians 2, 14, Paul simply says, a natural man, an unsaved man, a man without the spirit of God, a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, a believer, appraises, appreciates, understands all things. You say, everything in the world? Like diesel mechanics? No, no, no. Yet he himself is appraised by no one. Now, verse 16 is critical. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? Quoting Isaiah, and we have the mind of Christ. He's saying that the scripture is what is to be interpreted, understood, and applied. And it will only be understood properly interpreted and genuinely applied by someone who is illumined by the Spirit, someone who is spiritually minded, shorthand for someone who's a Christian. Now, footnote to that. Does that mean an unbeliever can't understand the Bible? If faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, if they can't understand, how can they ever understand? Well, (laughs) there's two levels of understanding. There's Understanding the words on the page and understanding with your heart. Understanding the words on the page is necessary to get it into your heart. Now, another person may say, well, what if you can't read? Well, a whole lot of people in the history of the church were not able to read or didn't have a Bible. Someone read it to them and it still had its efficacious power. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. It's one of my favorite passages in ministry. 2 Corinthians 4.13, but having the same spirit of faith. Here it is. According to what is written, therefore, I believed and I spoke. I believe, therefore, I spoke. We also believe, therefore, we also speak. Paul is saying my faith as a preacher, as a leader, is built on the fact that I actually believe what was written. I have a sincere faith. If I never preached another sermon, I believe it. I believe, therefore I speak. And one more, 1 Peter chapter two. 1 Peter chapter two, verse one. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that so by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. There's so much in here. We were drawn to the word like a, like a hungry child, who's, who, a hungry, hungry infant who's wailing because of hunger. If you've not experienced that as a parent, just trust us who have. But you know what I find interesting too is the analogy goes a little further. 
even the most immature can have some understanding of scripture. Folks, that's why we teach the Bible in Sunday school from, from the very youngest all the way up. Don't ever underestimate what your children can learn by the power of God's word. God is clear. He's spoken clear. Our third major heading there is common mistakes made about the perspicuity of scripture. And this is where it gets personal. What are mistakes we make regarding this doctrine? Well, the first is presuming that the Bible is not understandable. As I said earlier, this is a starting point for many. It's an attack on the character of God and his ability to communicate. So many people I have debated, argued with, talked to, tried to convince, say there's no way that is clear. That's like an attack on God's character. To start with the fact that, well, this is obviously in another language written a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away and it can't possibly have anything to do with me is a horrible mistake to make. Equally as horrific though, secondly, is abdicating, just denying or being irresponsible with personal responsibility of interpreting for interpreting and applying the text. Listen, the Bible is not a book of charms. It's not a book of verses that are isolated from context. It's not a superstitious icon. I'll never forget on my wrestling team, a guy who, uh, I've told you this before, before our wrestling matches, he would take his Bible and he would rub it all over himself. I said, why are you doing that? He says, I want the power of God. Well, that's not how it works. So many people read a verse, initially have a trouble saying, I'm not sure what that means, and they just punt. It's important that you have a good Important word, hermeneutic. A literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to the Bible. That by applying these principles that it's literal, meaning it includes figurative language, you take regular language at face value, take it literally, God said what he meant and meant what he said. Historical, all of these, these texts were written in a historical context that's helpful to understand uh, a literal, historical, grammatical, the grammar, every jot and tittle, every prepositional phrase means something. And contextual. First, the, 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 the three rules of real estate is location, location, location. The three rules of Bible interpretation is context, context, context. And many people just, the mistake they make is, ah, it's, it's not clear, so I'm gonna give up. no. The joy that comes by figuring it out is worth the process. The other side of that is another mistake people make, believing that the scripture is easy to understand. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Listen, as a, what does it say? Workman, this is the famous Awana verse, as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth, it takes work. It's not always easy. So don't come and say, ah, this is a piece of cake. It takes work. And then a the fourth mistake. This is really important. P- please park here for a moment. Turning disagreement with or dislike 
of a text or a doctrine in a text, turning that into distrust of God's clarity. Typically, this is because of personal Christian tradition. You, uh, you make decisions before you ever open the Bible as to, to what you believe. You, you bring your grid and lay it on top of the Bible and says what the scripture says has to fit into what I already believe. Boy, I've seen this so many times. I, full confession, the, the first time I ever studied the doctrine of, of election and predestination, um, I was in my first year of seminary and uh, grew up in a very Arminian tradition. And I used to say things like I'm a three or a three and a half point Calvinist. And I didn't even know which half or point I left, left off. I didn't even understand it. It just sounded good. I remember studying in the um, very first semester in hermeneutics, the longest sentence in the Greek text, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. And coming face to face with the doctrine of election, and understanding what the text meant, what it said, what the text meant, and realizing that my problem with that doctrine was not that I didn't understand it. My problem with that doctrine is I didn't like it. It rode against my upbringing and my previous theological assumptions. Sometimes it's a relationship that will keep you from seeing the clarity of Scripture. Well, so-and-so doesn't believe this, therefore I can't believe this. I was heartbroken. And this was a, one of those pastoral moments where you just don't even know what to say. I had a woman one time tell me, I was talking to her about the gospel. Well, if what you're saying is true, my husband who died didn't go to heaven. And if that's true, then that can't be what this means. It's important to ask ourselves if our suspicion of God's clarity is not due to understanding, but presuppositions. Thinking that's visceral, that's fleshly, that's unbiblical. Brings us last to what do we do with it? How do we apply the clarity or the perspicuity of Scripture? Here's some takeaways for you. First, we should come reading the Bible with the expectation that it is intelligible and accessible. Everyone should read the Bible with certain expectation. Everyone does read the Bible expecting certain things. You should expect that God was clear and if there's a problem in understanding, it's between my ears, not on the page. I was in the high school. I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I was in high school in a Sunday school class at a very uh, liberal, I think they called themselves a moderate Southern Baptist church. I didn't even know what the word meant. I was newly converted, powering through my Ryrie study Bible, marking everything that I could. And we're doing a Bible survey and the high school Sunday school teacher came to the book of Revelation. And this was his explanation. No one understands what the book of Revelation means and no one ever can because there was a code book there was a code book where all of these symbols were explained and that code book was lost. And it will be found someday in the future and people will understand it again. <laughs> really? And the first question all of us in class had was, how do you know that? <laughs> this is the Dan Brown approach to 
hermeneutics, the Da Vinci Code, right? Well, the Bible says that, but there's extra stuff that's clever and superstitious and kind of mysterious. And if you can find that, then you can really understand what this book means. We should read with the expectation that God said what he meant and he meant what he said. Take it at face value. Secondly, keep the doctrine of God and of Scripture closely related. As we said earlier, this is all tied to God's nature. If he is the way he is, good, holy, righteous. We should expect him to talk like that. And if he's omniscient, omnipotent, he knows everything, he's everywhere, we should expect that he can communicate clearly. If the Bible isn't clear and it's God's word, either God wasn't clear or this isn't his word. It's that simple. Again, God doesn't have a speech impediment. Third application is we should expect the interpretation process to take work and produce fruit. When you sit down with a text that's difficult to understand, don't expect that you're just going to read it once and get it all Sometimes you do. I mean, think about John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, stop right there. You could spend hours talking about conjunction four. God, why does he use that word and not another? So, what's the extent? Love, why this word for love and not another? The world, what does the world mean? And at the same time, I could sit down with a, a fourth grade Sunday school class and teach that with pristine clarity. Wayne Grudem explains that though the Bible itself testifies to its own message that it's comprehensible and accessible, he says, you have to have these caveats. This is important. We can understand the Bible, but first, not all at once. <laughs> That's good. Secondly, not without effort. Not without ordinary means, like teachers and instructor, not without a reader's willingness to obey it, not without the help of the Holy Spirit, not without human misunderstanding. Sometimes we get it wrong and we never understand completely. Can I humble all of you for just a minute? Your theology somewhere is wrong. Something you believe is not exactly as it should be. Now, instead of discouraging you, that should encourage you to keep studying. Don't assume, ah, I read the Bible once, that's it, done. And fourthly, this is important, acknowledge the reality of difficult text. There are hard passages. Even Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, talks about Paul, he says in verse 16, he's speaking in his letters, which are hard to understand. <laughs> This is Peter talking about Paul and saying, it's hard to understand. Not impossible. It takes work. It's hard to understand. That should not be a discouragement. That is incredibly encouraging to me. I want to admit that there are texts that are difficult. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, baptism for the dead. Tough text. I have some ideas. Tough text. Ezekiel 43, 18 to 27, animal sacrifices during the kingdom of God in the future. Tough text. No matter what eschatology or view of future things you have, tough text. 
Someday in the future, there's going to be more animal sacrifices, and yet Hebrews says he's done with the sacrificial system. Tough text. Not impossible. I have some ideas about that one too. Even 1 Samuel 28. Anyone read 1 Samuel recently? Saul has a conversation with Samuel's ghost. And so I read that and think, well, are, can you talk to ghosts or what's going on? I mean, difficult text to understand and to apply, not impossible. Lastly, you need to anticipate pushback, anticipate resistance to this doctrine. It brings us back to those two words that are the most dangerous words in your vocabulary to your understanding of scripture, the words and and the word but. I know the Bible says that and the Book of Mormon says and the Catholic canon says and the Pope says, adding to scripture. And the other damaging question, dangerous question is, I know the word of God, is, the word of God says that, but that's not what it meant. There's someone who has been writing, a man named Christian Smith. He's public on this, so I don't feel there's any reason to hide his name. He's talking about expository preaching in a book called The Bible Made Impossible. And he says that expository preaching proceeds on the assumption that a minister can actually select virtually any passage of Scripture and adduce from the text an authoritative, relevant, applicable teaching to be believed and applied by the congregation. Says that's a bad thought. Can I just ask you, what's the other option? What's the option B? If we can't look to this book, believe that God said it, and I can understand and apply what he said, if we can't do that, where do we go? Where's our authority in life? You're doomed to absolute unbridled subjectionism where everyone's, this is the day of judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes or radical ambiguity. This is the Brian McLaren approach. Well, it just means whatever it means to you. We see the challenge of the resistance to the clarity of God demonstrated in the contemporary homosexual movement, which says, well, because homosexuality is so pervasive in our culture, the Bible's prohibition against it and declaring it of a sin could not be true. See the linear logic there from where we are to back there? You see it on men and women's roles in the church and in family. Well, God has certainly given women gifts to teach, and wouldn't he be wouldn't the church be neglectful and, and um, absent of full blessing if women gifted teachers didn't teach the whole assembly when Paul clearly says to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians in 1 Timothy that a woman shouldn't assume authority and a teaching role in the church? We see this about the doctrines of election and predestination. In other words, I know the Bible says that, but that's not clear. You know what? God's really clear really clear. The phrase, it is written, speaking of other scriptures, 
The internal testimony of Bible writers talking about other scriptures, listen, the phrase, it is written, occurs 331 times. Do you think they believed you could point to scripture to understand and believe and apply? They did. And ultimately, the clearest message of the Bible is that you and I are broken, hopeless, wicked, and wretchful sinners in rebellion against God. We're born that way. And that the only hope we have is the clear gospel news that God sent his son to take our sin on him in a death he didn't deserve to die for us instead of us, the death we should have experienced and to give us his perfection, his righteous standing before God in heaven and that he was killed, executed, buried to prove it, there for three days and rose from the grave and now sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession and praying for the believers in the gospel. That is the central clear message Genesis to Revelation. In anticipation, in fulfillment, in explanation, and in anticipation for the coming kingdom will be consummated in our glorification. Do you believe that God's word is perspicuous, that it's clear? Your disposition about that I believe, touches every part of your life and certainly influences every dimension of your theology. I praise God that in talking to the folks and coming to Mission Road Bible Church, we talked about these issues and what made us most alike eight years ago when I started talking to Mike and Bob and the elders what made that clear, I think on both of our parts, is we both believe that God had spoken, he'd spoken clearly, and our entire ministry and vision and, and philosophy of discipling each other and moving each other is to understand what he said so we know what to believe and so we know how to live. What hope. Listen, don't be distracted by people who speak to you like that silly twinkle, twinkle um, aberration of a sweet little nursery rhyme. God doesn't talk like that. He has spoken clearly. Even the godless philosopher Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. And you understand a lot more than you think. Listen, if you want to talk more about that, our prayer room will be open in a minute. We'd love to discuss these things with you.